Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy to be uh, rejoined by Colonel Chris Mayer, who's the Associate Dean for Strategy and Initiatives at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Before we get into anything else, I did want to just disclaim that our views and Chris's views are our own, and they're not a reflection of the U.S. Military Academy, the Army, or the Department of Defense. Very happy to have Chris back. We had a really interesting conversation, what felt like years ago, but was really back in November of uh, 2019. Lots of stuff to jump off with, but uh, before we get into any of that, Chris, welcome back to Trending in Education. Yeah, Mike, thanks for having me again. I, I really had a great conversation before and been really enjoying the podcast the past uh, year and a yeah. few months. And when you wrote it, I, I look back and it's hard to imagine life before the pandemic. So I assumed we talked in the spring of 2020, but it was actually before that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and for me, I like I feel like almost the equivalent of, of dog years. Like for me, it <laughs> felt like we talked more than uh, a year and change ago. It felt like two or three years, uh, just because uh, so much yeah. has transpired in the meantime. And we'll be pulling some of that uh, sound back and we'll be sharing that episode. I did listen to it in preparation for today's conversation. And it was really relevant what we had talked about. On our previous uh, conversation, we talked about uh, the concept of VUCA, which is a, a military acronym, which we'll get into a bit as part of this conversation. And then also some futures work and some futures thinking by a gentleman named Bob Johansson, who wrote a book called uh, The New Leadership Literacies, where he outlined five different competencies that he expected to become increasingly relevant for leaders in the future. And as fortune or misfortune may have it, it turns out that many of the things that, that we talked about in that conversation wound up being extremely relevant in the 14 or so months since we just talked. I thought that might be a good place to, to jump off from, Chris. To begin with, can you give us the definition of VUCA? Sure. And it's got a military background. It was, it was uh, devised at the Army War College at Carlisle, Pennsylvania. But it's the idea that things are volatile uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and that because the world is that way, that you had to be prepared to, to plan and act and really do the best you can. You're not going to be able to predict the future. Trends that appear to be heading one way could all of a sudden go a different way. And things like, there were indications of it, but the Berlin Wall uh, coming down was was a surprise that it came down so quickly, or of course this, the pandemic or 9-11, mm -hmm. things like that. And that really the key is to be prepared and to develop leaders who are able to think long-term, but also understand that the future is multiple. There's not one future, but you have to look at multiple futures and, and really prepare for the the most probable ones. Yeah. And those of us who enjoy the the Marvel comic universe, among other things, are, are getting increasingly comfortable yeah. with these concepts of the multiverse and the idea that different yeah. realities may exist. So mm -hmm. I think there is a, a connection there. There's also some interesting connections to science fiction and oh, yeah. thinking about alternative realities. I'm a big fan of Black Mirror, and it feels like already we're living in a Black Mirror episode. And then when you start looking forward, it can get even more crazy where the world may head, but we thought we were going to jump off a bit with the five competencies that Johansson outlined in his book. They do seem to to resonate uh, in a lot of interesting ways. Can you share them? Sure. And I, I should say that the subtitle of the book, and it's, it's so great that you 
decided to, to focus on these because the subtitle is Thriving in a Future of Extreme Disruption, which we're in, and Distributed Everything, which people are distributed work-wise especially now. Yeah. So he lists these five leadership literacies that he thinks are necessary to, to thrive in the future. The first one is forecasting likely futures so you can look back and make sure you're prepared for the changes to come. And I think the, the time frame for many organizations has always been one or two years, but Johansson's pushing people to look as futurists do at least 10 years out. And again, it's not about predicting the future. It's about exploring possibilities and enhancing your readiness. But also futurists talk about possible, probable, and preferred futures, looking at your preferred future and seeking to shape things to move that direction. Mm-hmm. And again, it's also about the future is not necessarily a continuation of the past that things may change. Yeah. And and for that one, and I think we'll probably take an extra beat on each of these in a moment, but that one in particular, in light of the pandemic was interesting to me because as someone who's thinking about the future a lot, I tend not to think further than six to 18 months. It's right. hard for me to reset to that 10-year horizon, in part because a lot of the changes we've seen in, say, the last year plus have had profound impacts on what may happen 10 years out. So if I'm thinking about 10 years from now, I'm going to think much more about the likelihood of other super viruses. And I'm going to think about biotech and some of these other possible futures are going to bump up top of mind and other possible futures may recede into my imagination. But uh, hopefully we'll get to that point in the conversation towards the end where we can muse a little more about where things may be. And I think some of that reflection may be inspired by how wackadoodle uh, things have become over the last year and change. Yeah. Like you said earlier, the science fiction helps with that looking Mm -hmm. out 10 years, but also looking at trends and looking backwards. If you look at smartphone adoption and smart speaker adoption over the previous 10 years, you can get an idea of how other technologies might take off Mm -hmm. as you think about 10 years out. Yeah. And also if you think about the step changes that happened in response to the pandemic, yeah, where do we step back or where do we, where did we step through to something that is now meaningfully different? And that's why some of the early thinking I've I've mentioned Scott Galloway's book, post Corona, Mm -hmm. which I thought was an interesting read. Some of that thinking is more just saying, where are we going to land on the other side of this transformational experience that we've all gone through? I think that's an interesting lens, but hopefully we'll get to the far out thinking, the 2030 far sight, I right. like to call it. Number two is a use low risk gaming spaces and scenarios to work through your concerns about the future and hone your leadership skills. And you know, futurists like to use both gaming and scenarios as stories about the future to put you in the place and help you um, think through what might happen and then Again, it, it's not an exact science, but it's just putting you in place and helping you think through what might happen, how you might prepare yeah. and adapt. And, and that's one that I can't think of anyone who hasn't had to go through those disaster recovery scenarios and, and whatever sort of emergency response planning windows that people had to go through in 2020 in particular. I think it resonates more with people now that being scenario-based, thinking about contingency planning, thinking about surprising scenarios so that you're priming your imagination so you can respond when stuff actually gets crazy. It feels like the relevance of this competency has surely been borne out by the year that we had in 2020. 
Right. And you, you've had Brian Alexander on? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, his, in his book, Academia yes. Next, he talked about the pandemic. And I imagine some colleges look, oh, that'll never happen. We're not going to do scenario planning for that. But of course it was possible. And yeah, so it is important to cast aside your doubts and really immerse yourself in those. Yeah. Number three and four are both very uh, relevant to today. It's number three is lead shape shifting organizations where you can't just tell people what to do. Johansson talks about the hierarchical command and control organizations are giving way to distributed decentralized ones. And in, in a sense, we saw that during the response to the pandemic, people, they were spread out physically, geographically, but I think also just people were giving more, more latitude to do things because there was so much going on as a supervisor, you couldn't keep tabs on everything that worked for you were doing because mm-hmm. you were responding to just so much of so many hours of work went into just the response to the pandemic. And I think organizations now will be more open to, to shifting how they organize and, and not being so structured and maybe they're matrix organizations, maybe something different, but right. one's definitely borne out. Yeah. And the related one is because everything had to move to remote and distributed just by virtue of the social distancing and moving away from a central physical command location in some ways that the technology forced us to adopt a more distributed approach and the organizations and leaders who leaned into that mode were able to thrive to your point before and then organizations that were slower to respond and maybe didn't necessarily have the shape-shifting mindset have really struggled. And you, you hear a lot about the small businesses that have suffered through the pandemic, but there's a lot of rigid mid to large organizations whose structures don't lend to the shape-shifting you're describing, and they're really struggling. And a lot of that does tie, I think, to the fourth point, yeah. which, uh, which is more about the ability to lead when you're not physically there. Yeah. He says, be a dynamic presence, even when you're not there in person. And of course, People were working remotely before the pandemic, but not at this scale. And it, it's trust is a big one. Like I think some organizations just didn't have the trust to let massive numbers of people work, but now there, there's no choice. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there's more trust now. I think people are saying we can let people work out of the office and they're not going to goof off all day. They're going to do work. And uh, though the, I think one challenge has been that so many organizations have built culture through their physical presence. I remember going to New York City to an office and they had the uh, spin bikes in one room and they, and there's so many different things that organic food, things we don't get in the army. Maybe, maybe a beer tap. I don't know, depending on where you're working. I'm not sure they had a beer. They were very health. Espresso, concert. maybe an espresso machine. I don't know. It depends, a, depends on where espresso, you are. Yeah. 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 But they were very, office was really a, a, a culture shaper. So now people are having to figure out how to do that from afar. How do you onboard a person to organization from afar. I think there's always going to be a need, especially at the lower organizational levels for leaders to be there with their teams in person. Mm -hmm. But I think in many other ways at different echelons, the army has been willing to let people work remotely and it's seeing some value in it. Yeah. Yes, this was a great one by Johansson. Oh my God. Well, it was a good job by us too, just as another reason not to reinforce to folks who are still listening, but you're making a good decision to listen to this show where we were talking about a lot of this stuff back in November 
of uh, 2019. If we had a little more foresight, we maybe would have bought some Zoom stock and, yeah. and done, done some other things that might have positioned us well for the future. But we were at least thinking in the right way. And, and I do want to come back to the uh, concept of character development, which is something oh, yeah. that I've heard you talk a lot about, which I, I do want to circle back to that. But before we do, the, the fifth point uh, is more about positivity. He talks about keeping your personal energy high and transmit that energy throughout the organization. Leaders need to seed realistic hope in a future that will be laced with fear. Mm-hmm. And of course, the pandemic was a lot of fear mm-hmm. and realistic hope. I think that's important too. You can't say, oh, we're going to be out of out of mask and in the office next week. But it was important. And my, our dean here in her address to the faculty just shared some of her concerns and she's retiring. But I think you, you saw a lot of leaders being vulnerable, but also being positive and hopeful as well. And, and also focusing on on the well-being in a way that many organizations didn't. You do need that with the pandemic. Yeah. And the other aspect that I think is hugely important is uh, storytelling and the ability to position your narrative and your students or your followers, your employees, whomever, your peers, with uh, a way to understand who you are and how you're finding meaning through this and where you're seeking to drive things. I think it's been a time for all of us to reflect a little bit about our own voice and then figure out how much we can begin to put something out there that can genuinely inspire others. And then at the same time, I've seen, we've talked about the importance of character development to uh, the academic philosophy of the military academy. Uh, It's something I've seen more really when I talk to folks in K-12, but I feel like more on the lifelong learning, higher ed and beyond continuing education, it does feel like there's a growing need to really educate people and coach them and help them develop their own character. And uh, I'd love to get some of your perspective on that. No, I think we're seeing a lot of calls for teaching and developing citizenship and being more intentional about just the the traits that make someone a a good citizen and and willing to work with different types of people. And I, I think a big one is just being able to disagree agreeably with others and to work through problems. And I I think a lot of leaders in the workplace now are starting to address these social issues more um, explicitly and and tackling them. But I think character development has to be laced throughout secondary, post-secondary education, Mm -hmm. elementary education. It's not just in a character education class. I think it's everything is about character education. Our our, uh, department of physics department head always talks about um, developing leaders of character through teaching physics. And and so he views teaching physics as a way to develop leaders of character. And I think that mindset needs to really be uh, adopted more across education. And even in the learning and development space is interesting too. When you're an organization who's trying to attract talent and uh, retain them and really empower your own organization by empowering them, there's an element to attracting folks who believe in your values and right. are able to demonstrate the, the interpersonal dynamics that, that you believe are essential to the, to the success of your culture. That, that's where a lot of the insights that you're putting out there, and I always recommend folks find, find Chris on LinkedIn in particular, also Twitter, you're putting a lot of really interesting concepts out there that to me resonate well beyond the military or even military education sphere and are more broadly 
relevant within higher education and, and elsewhere. Do you have any thoughts on how to make more of those types of connections or ways in which lessons learned or insights from the military education can mm. be made more accessible to, to a wider audience? Oh, that's interesting. This, this podcast is a great example. Yeah. Yeah. And our faculty and the faculty at the other service academies do interact quite often. And we, we have conferences with uh, different colleges at West Point. I, I don't think we had it last year because we didn't, we decided not to go online, but we did have a long-standing conference with others. But no, I think just reach out. We're always willing to chat and also learn from others. We've been talking a lot with Dartmouth College the past, but just, I think it's just individuals reaching out and, and talking to us, but all of our foundational documents are posted online. Mm-hmm. And so anyone could look at them and, and then write us to chat about them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't think, and again, I don't think we have it. We're always growing and trying to figure out better ways and we're adapting to different types of students coming in because generations change and, and right. the environment changes, but so we're looking to learn as well, but well, I think we do have a lot to offer. Yeah, and it also seems like by by the nature of the, the the training that you're doing at the military academies, it's by nature interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, and it's yeah. also applied in a way that right. a lot of higher education, I think when it's critiqued, there's a relatively strong critique that post-secondary education in the traditional university of higher education may not equip students with the the right application of these more uh, abstract concepts. I know you're a philosopher uh, in training as well. Can you talk a little bit about how even a concept that's like philosophy can really connect to real life applications? And then we got to start thinking about the future in the conversation. Sure, sure, sure. Because we haven't talked about robots yet. So we got to deliver to the people what they want. But uh, but any thoughts about philosophy and the relevance of it and how it can be uh, integrated? Yeah, so we at West Point, we are fortunate that we have a very focused mission to develop leaders of character who become army officers. And so our philosophy course is it's segmented into three things. It's a, a critical thinking block, an ethical theory block, and then an ethics of war block. And so it is the cadets realize that they're entering a profession that's going to require um, them to think a lot about ethics. So in that way, it is focused. But I think even in, in a, a typical higher education setting, the critical thinking and the ethics, and maybe you'd want to add in political philosophy, give people just a deeper way to think about problems. I mean, all you have to do is is look at the news and you just pick a problem and you apply how they're thinking about philosophical problems to that. And I think students will see that there's value in it. And I think the, the, the also the other value in philosophy of many is that just the ability to write an argument that is focused on discovering the truth, not winning. Mm-hmm. And, and then also engaging in a classroom of people where you can disagree with someone about a topic such as maybe capital punishment, yeah. but, you, but you're not attacking the person you're looking at their argument. And so I think that is definitely something I, I know many civilian higher education institutions do use philosophy for that, but I think that's what you can get out of philosophy. Yeah. It reminds me of, again, hearkening back to Johansson's work, strong opinions lightly held. So the ability to articulate something forcefully and coherently using good rhetorical skills, but then at the same time being open to being convinced of an alternative opinion and even seeking out 
the dissent and the alternative opinion for the sake of a, a more full understanding of the options that are on the table and ways to avoid groupthink. Yeah, I always talk to my students about, you know, flip-flopping is seen as a negative in politics. I said, but if you get better evidence for a view and you change your view, mm -hmm. then that's a good thing that you've actually gone with where you think the evidence is taking you. Yeah, exactly. A, and uh, you're someone who's looking ahead as well. Yeah, yeah. What, what's on the horizon? I'm always uh, intrigued by the mythology around robots and robot overlords and the role of humans relative to artificial intelligence. It could be an entirely different episode or another podcast, but we have a little bit of your time sure. now and we're thinking about uh, longer strategic horizons. What are you thinking about the, the future of work and how it relates to automation and the emergence of new technologies? And the thing that seemed to capture the collective uh, zeitgeist, as I like to say, was the general dynamics of robots yes. dancing. Any thoughts on this crazy world of robotics and, and the future? So it, it's funny that the, that video was, it, it went viral. And in many ways, who cares if they can dance? But I think it, it does show that robots are becoming more capable and, and doing things that we might want them to do. So I'm going to start out of the workplace. I'm going to start with social mm. and, and where I think in 10 years, we might see a lot of change. And one thing is with companion robots, which are seeing a lot more produced now. And I think the pandemic, many people were lonely and there's different versions where there's some where that are physical manifestations of people. And there's also holograms. And there's a, a video from Japan that shows a hologram that's about maybe a foot and a half tall. And, and she turns the lights on for a businessman as he comes home. They have dinner together. Get in the morning, she tells him what the weather is going to be. He calls during the day to talk to her. And so it, in many ways, it's a little creepy. But I think as AI becomes more advanced, you're going to see this sort of thing and, and, and then maybe even the physical manifestation of robots, given that the, the Boston dynamics are showing how, how much robots can move like us. Yeah. And I, I think a decent number of people are going to have significant relationships with ro robots. Yeah. I know there's been a couple of cases around the world where people have married robots, but I, I do think that's going to radically change everything. I think people will see them as companions just like they would a person. So I think that's one. And then where that comes into the workplace, I mean, we, we saw in even in Iraq during the war with IED robots, when the, when the robot got damaged by an IED, the soldiers gave it a funeral. Yep. And so we're seeing these attachments to robots. Mm -hmm. And so as robots become more, more advanced and they do more things for us in terms of decision-making, I think we're going to rely more on them and, and develop these bonds with them that in, in many ways, I think you'll onboard a robot to a team that will um, either be your companion and that works alongside you or, or does a separate role in the company or possibly makes decisions for the company, certain types of decisions, maybe not ones that truly impact people, but mm -hmm. make certain type of decisions. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to form this human-robot bond which I think leaders then will have to T-bill with robots, ensure that mm -hmm. there's trust. Because there are, there are cases where people don't trust robots. There's, there's some cases where they right. are really fond of them and some cases where they don't. So yeah, I, I think you're going to see a lot more than that. Even now you're seeing in like warehouses and things, these robots adding a lot of capability. Yeah. But in 10 years, they're going to be an integral part of, of work and we're going to have to adapt. What is it 
we can add value, like our human skills, like our creativity and, yeah. and those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about the human to human social, emotional skills, but now there will be, right. to your point, there will be a new set of skills that will be being able to lead and be empathetic with non-human agents, which is is wild to think about, but it's happening. And, and then the related concept that I talk about a lot when I can is the uncanny valley, which is that as robots begin to resemble humans, but don't quite get there, there's a certain level of creepiness right. to them, which is why I will share out the, the Boston Dynamics. Dancing robots, if you haven't seen them, they, they were pretty, they, they had a minute at least of social media relevance uh, a couple months ago, but it's interesting in that they don't look human and that the oh. ones that look almost human, but are clearly not, are the ones that, that roboticists have talked about for years where, and then similarly a hologram, it's clearly not a physical human there with you. Whereas the, the companions that have been interesting to me have been also the almost therapeutic use cases where right. almost the equivalent of a, a comfort animal, if you could have some of the tactile connection that you get from a pet, from a robot, it, it avoids the, the robot overlord scenario. And, uh, right. and that's the other one that I, while I have you, Chris, I know these are your yeah. views, but I do want to understand the level of, to which you feel like we should be concerned about the robot overlords. Are there uh, places where we need to be smart in terms of designing this technology or training the humans who interact with this technology to make sure we're safe in the future? But in the meantime, maybe just really nice service robot pets are a safe scenario to think about in the future. But any thoughts on any of this? Yeah, you're seeing, and, and some of those, you're seeing robots being able to, to learn people's preferences. Mm -hmm. And so you can take that out 10 years, you can really see how good a companions they would be. Mm -hmm. No, I think there, there's a lot of debate and internationally about killer robots. Mm -hmm. The idea that a, a robot could make a decision without a human in the loop. And I'm glad that there's so much, so much of a focus on ethics and AI. And I think some people say, look, does it matter who pulls the trigger because you're going to be dead anyway. But I, I think this is an area where we need to be very careful. Not necessarily, I, I think we're a ways off from the robot overlord, but I think just even with self-driving cars, I think there's the concern about the old trolley problem where do you go straight and kill five or veer off and hit one? And mm -hmm. they're thinking about that now in terms of, of developing self-driving cars to do those sorts of things. So I think ethics has to be throughout all these things and yeah. humans... I think most humans need to at least understand the ethics of it. And someone needs to be able to ensure that the thing's working properly. Mm -hmm. Like that we're not just turning these things loose and at least robots that can harm people that they're truly working. And I, and I put cars in that because cars can harm the passengers and, and, and pedestrians. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, education's got to get in there to, to help. And I think this movement towards just strong ethical foundations for all this work yeah. throughout not at the end but throughout has to be continued mm -hmm. it also reminds me of the the field of uh, decision and information science as well like yeah how do you make informed decisions and then frequently the best decisions will be made when the human has access to ai access to the artificial intelligence but then is still able to assert some level of decision ownership at the end of the day even though ultimately these things increasingly become more of a blend right yeah. You, you mentioned sci-fi. Have you seen the movie Wally? Yes. 
Uh, so I mean, because I, I think the lesson in that for humans, I mean, for those who haven't seen it, it's about Earth has become uninhabitable and humans go off for maybe it's seven generations in the spaceships and the spaceships are run by AI. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, the robot does become an overlord. Humans become so lazy yeah. physically and, inter- and intellectually that when it's determined that they're, they might be able to go back to Earth, it's almost too late for them to actually get the robot to take them back. And, and even just getting out of the chair becomes difficult for right. humans because they're so reliant yeah. on technology. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think that is the caution that we don't become so reliant. In one of the books I read called X Events, The Complexity of Overload and the Collapse of Everything does talk about as things become so interconnected with technology, as we look out 10 years, what if there's a solar flare that... Right that knocks everything out. What happens? Like everything right now is relying on it. Just imagine in 10 years as we're having AI assisted decision-making, will we be able to come back and do things for ourselves? So that is the, these things are all great, but that is the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. And we're getting close to time, Chris. This is amazing. Love having you on an open invite to have you back on in the future. This is, is great stuff. Anything else that we haven't talked about that you've been noticing? As I mentioned, you're a great follow on Twitter and LinkedIn. You're an avaricious reader who's curating a really interesting stream of stuff that's going on in the world around us. What else is capturing your imagination these days that, that we haven't uh, talked about? I think, like, you, like you've you said a couple of times, this idea of reading sci-fi is important. And I think thinking about the future in a systematic way is important. And it's Association of Professional Futurists has some really great resources for doing that, as does the Institute for the Future, University of Houston, and the Future School. I've done trainings with all those Mm. organizations, and it's helped me think about the future in in more productive ways. And then also just as you think about the future of work and and robotics and, and how work is changing, just the need for higher ed, not to make it vocational, but to do both, to ensure that even the humanities degrees are, are investing in career services, are ensuring that the, the high-level skills or teaching students are translatable to the fields and, and talking to, the, to their alumni and saying, hey, how did we do? Is there anything we could do better to prepare our current students for uh, post-graduation employment? Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that and how to achieve that balance without mm-hmm. going too far in one way or the other. Yeah. Really uh, interesting perspective. Colonel Chris Mayer, the Associate Dean for Strategy and Initiatives at the U.S. Military Academy. Really interesting follow. Someone I've gotten inspiration and uh, strategic direction from by following what Chris is putting out there. Very much appreciate what you're doing. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. Awesome. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, there's more notes related to a lot of these topics that we just described that we'll be sharing out as part of this episode. So check out the show notes, follow us on Twitter at Trending in Ed. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.